0: Here is your host, Elise Cortez.
1: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, then you know this program is all about helping people create more meaningful and purposeful lives and equipping leaders inside organizations to cultivate meaning and purpose that elicits passion, inspired contribution, innovation, and persevering performance. I talk with my guests to draw on their expertise and share my own experience consulting, speaking, and developing workforces across the globe. Before we get into the program, let me give a shout out to our sponsor, rentwithrighttobuy.com. This real estate service allows for a way to buy, get to homeownership with a lot more options, especially when you're not actually ready. It's a great option if your credit is not in the best of shape or you're in transition such as divorce, downsizing, or relocating, or unsure about the new area. Anyway, visit rentwithrighttobuy.com. Each week in these conversations, I hope you walk away with something you can immediately use in your life or your work. And if I can do anything to help you along your journey, go to my website at EliseCortez.com and use the contact me feature to message me. Let's open a conversation and explore what's going on for you and how I might be able to help. Whether you want to learn more about how to develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused culture in your organization, you want to see about joining a catchfire online inspiration, accountability, or mastermind community to nurture your own passion and purpose, or you'd like me to speak for your company or conference. At any rate, I'm glad we're connected, and thanks for listening. With us this week is Mike Rouse. He's a running and endurance sports enthusiast and philanthropist. We'll be talking about his life before and during prison, how he started over after incarceration, and the full life he has created for himself in the running and endurance sports industry and as a philanthropist. He joins us today right next to me in my Dallas studio office. Mike, welcome to Working on Purpose.
2: Thank you, Lace. Good to be here today. So
1: great to have you. And thank you, Katrina Benedict, for, for connecting us. Really appreciate that. Okay, so we're going to talk about a few things here. I want to talk about your life before you got into before you got into into prison, um, and then during. So first, if you would, for our listeners who have not heard the story, briefly paint that picture of what it was like in that early life. You were running and gunning, had a Quite a lot going on.
2: Well, I wasn't running as far as the actual (laughs) sport goes, but I was running and gunning. Uh, I grew up about 180 miles west of Dallas in Abilene, Texas. Uh, My father was a custom home builder, and after graduation from college, I went into a partnership with him. Uh, we were very successful home builders and uh life was all good uh i was well known i got married at age 19 had a couple of kids and so i just had your typical west texas lifestyle uh family business wife and two kids uh doing all the things that you normally do out in west texas going to church and and just having a great life uh all of a sudden i uh, won't get into details about it but in 1982 i got divorced and uh Turned my whole life upside down. Uh, my wife and kids moved about a hundred and, uh, or ex-wife, I should say, and, and kids moved about 150 miles west to Midland, and so I only got to see my kids every other weekend after driving about three hours to pick them up, and it, it just kind of lost all, all facets of what I was doing, and I got in with the wrong crowd. Uh, not to blame anybody but myself for my choices, but started playing golf. Uh, And was at the country club five, six days a week playing golf and all weekend long and got involved in heavy drinking. Uh, And next thing you know, I was involved in drugs and started doing cocaine. And being this runner-gunner type guy that was always active and physical and doing everything at 110%, uh, I went from snorting my first line of cocaine to within 30 days doing $1,000 a week. Wow. So uh, I... uh, anything I do, I go full bore. Mm-hmm. And so obviously that, that didn't do me well. Uh, I was on city council there in Abilene and, uh, in 1984, about three years after my divorce, I decided I would run for mayor, uh, kind of having grown up there, knew everybody in the city. And so threw my hat in the ring, uh, hadn't officially, uh, started running for mayor, but I had told everybody that I was going to, uh, and then my dealer got busted and, uh, put my name on the list as one of his clients, and they heard it was me, came after me because of my place in in the city uh, and in politics. And uh, make a long story short, I got sentenced to five years in the penitentiary in 1985.
1: Okay. So, let's talk a little bit about that. I have served on two juries. This is quite interesting. I'm happy to say I was on that side of the law, not the one that <laughs> you were on. So... You were, you were incarcerated from January 1986 to February 1987.
2: You were 33 years old when you went in. Correct. And so help us
1: understand, what was
2: it like in prison? Well, again, having grown up in a, a very successful uh, business family, uh, having been successful in business myself, Uh, member of two country clubs, city council. That's the side of life that I knew. Uh, I'd never had so much as a traffic ticket when I got arrested and charged with uh, possession of cocaine. Uh, And so it was an entirely different lifestyle for me. Uh, I went through about 18 months before my actual sentencing and and incarceration. And during that time, I started to kind of try to get my life back together. But obviously, I'd already made the mistakes that that sent me away. And so once I... uh, I got to prison on January the 2nd, 1986 to self-report. Uh, I'd never been without freedom in my life. And so it totally changed everything about me. And I'll never forget put, being put into a holding sale that first day for about eight hours with no clothes on, uh, Men just walking by, jeering and laughing at me. And then you get taken into, if you ever saw Shawshank Shawshank Redemption. Which I did. Where they soaked the guy with lice powder and then washed him down with the fire hose. That that happened. And uh, that was the start of day one. And I thought, wow, this is not how I intended for life to be. And so I kind of made my own personal commitment that day that this would never happen to me again. And that I would use the experience to get my life put back together.
1: Wow. Okay. So I want to, I want to, we've got some time here. So I want to be able to present this for our listeners, because there's got to be something about going through that experience for whatever it was, 18 months or almost two years, that probably quite transformed you. In addition, in addition to saying, you put a stake in the ground, this is not going to be my life. Help us understand, what did you get from that prison experience that really informed your life since? You've been out of prison now for, what, 30-some years. Mm -hmm. So help us understand, what did you get from that experience that changed
2: you, that transformed you? Well, you know, one of the things that I learned early on, uh, at least from being there, was uh, I didn't know it at the moment. I learned it later, uh, now that I've been out and I've done a lot of research on prison uh, and aftercare programs and that kind of thing. But the average person makes about 35,000 decisions a day. Now, I, I think that's probably an astounding number to most people, but when you, when you consider, you know, you're going to decide what time you're going to get up, what you're going to eat for breakfast, what that breakfast is going to entail, what you're going to wear from shoes to socks to pants to, you know, shirt – Everything about your day, what you're going to eat for for lunch, what you're going to eat for dinner, throughout the day, doing your job, doing your business, whatever your uh, b- uh, career is, you're making about an average of 35,000 decisions a day. Wow. The average inmate makes about 35 to 40 decisions a day. Pretty, wow. Dr- pretty drastic change. Wow. Because you're told when you're going to get up, where you're going to sleep, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, when you're going to eat it, what your job is, what your job entails. And literally you have you even told when you're going to shower but the only thing you can do on your own is go to the restaurant. I was going to say that's <laughs> got to be the only thing left. That's pretty much <laughs> and obviously in the line you get to choose maybe between one or two things but it's not like you have a array of restaurants to go to. You're going to go through the chow hall line and you probably have 10 things and you can pick 7 or the, you know whatever the number is. But so the decision making process is so greatly diminished uh and it was so astounding to me because i again i for 34 years 33 years i'd lived the life i wanted every single day every single minute mm-hmm. and now i'm told everything about how i'm going to how, how i'm going to react and so the one thing that i know about prison is that the last thing you remember the day that they finally send you away is that last thing that you really made a decision about was a horrible decision that mm-hmm. was the crime that put you where you're going. Mm-hmm. And so your decision-making process, not only has it been diminished greatly, but it also refers you back to the last great decision you made, which put you there. And so I started saying, you know, how how am I going to change this? This is not how I intended my life to go. Uh, and so about two weeks after my incarceration had started, I went out in the prison yard during my hour out in the yard and I thought, how do I get healthy? I was down to about 120 pounds. I'm Six foot tall, 120. I totally almost killed myself with the, the use of the drugs. And so I go. I went out there thinking, you know, how am I going to get my life back together? How am I going to get healthy and put this behind me? And so I saw guys lifting weights. And, you know, these guys had been in 20, 25 years. Big, <laughs> that wasn't going to be you. Yeah, big, strong ox <laughs> guys. And I'm thinking, well, that's, I'm not going around those guys. Uh, <laughs> I can hardly lift a barbell, much less put it over my head. But I saw guys running around the exterior of the yard. And I thought, well, that's something I can do. I've always thought of myself as an athlete. I was a high school college golfer and, you know, g- golfed then after my divorce. I, I've always been involved in athletics and watching sports. So I yeah, you know, I'd go run a couple miles and start to get healthy again. So I stopped one of the men and said, you know, what's what's the deal here? And he said, five laps is two miles. Two, it's two and a half laps per mile. And I thought, okay, well, I, I can do that. And so I started out. Of course, I've got on my... Uh, inmate uniform and my steel-toed boots and, uh, you know, not very comfortable for running. But, you know, it's all I had. And so I started out, and again, I'd never run a day in my life, a mile in my life, and I had no idea. And so about probably halfway through that first loop, I thought my heart was going to explode, and I had to stop and walk.
1: (laughs) I'm having a heart attack. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
2: exactly. And I thought, wow, I thought I was an athlete. I'm nothing close. But I kept going. Uh, Mentally, I was tough. And so I kept going. Maybe. Finished up the five laps, and I'll never forget laying on my bunk that night. Uh, My legs started to hurt, and I thought, wow, they're already hurting, and I just did that one time, but you know what? It's a good hurt. I did something positive for myself, and so that was kind of the catalyst for me starting to run. Uh, By the time I was released, uh, several months later, I was up to six to eight miles a day. I used every day, seven days a week of my hour on the yard to run around the, the exterior to Get, get some free time and get some fresh air and, and get my health back. Okay.
1: So what else did you learn? So the experience, and I'd love to hear a bit more about just what it's like. I mean, what time did you get up and what's the routine? And, and then what else did you learn? And then well, after
2: the break, we're going to talk about how you actually started over after being in prison you know, again, I couldn't tell you the time that I got up. Uh, It's been too long ago, 32 years since I was there. But uh, I do remember it was very early, three or four in the morning, uh, that that they woke you up and, you know, you marched down to the mess hall and you ate and then you got on a a bus or whatever to go to wherever your uh, job was. Uh, The prison I was in was actually a farm and a ranch with steers uh, and, and dairy cows. And so people were doing all kinds of ranching type jobs and I was a clerk uh and so but but you know all your day every minute of every day is is organized for you so again you make you make no decisions and uh I'll never forget one thing that really changed me uh I didn't realize it at the time I didn't I didn't know till later well, after I was released and, and put on parole but guy came in uh several months into my incarceration and had been incarcerated for 15 years. He'd been out for quite a while and had gotten his life together and he was asked to speak to us. And so I'll never forget his opening words were, I've got some really great news for you guys and I've got some really horrible news for you guys. And I'll start with the great news. The great news is that once you're released and you're all going to parole at some point, there's only one thing that you have to change about your life to get everything back to normal. And that is change everything. And he paused and I thought, Well, Val, that that sounds pretty easy. And he says, now here comes the really, really bad, horrible news. That one thing that you have to change is everything. And he paused again, and then he began to rattle off, changing where you live, changing what you do, changing your friends. And he went on and on for 10 or 15 minutes, throwing out everything that you've got to change. And it was pretty astounding. And I thought, wow, that that is going to be very difficult. Uh, And so... Uh, Little did I know at that time what an impact that was going to make on my life once I was released uh, in in 1987, Uh, but it, it stuck with me, and it also changed what I was thinking towards getting out, because I began to think, okay, what can I change, what will I change, what won't I change, because I was pretty content with how I had lived up until this drug incident.
1: And it's just really a lot of that, that's your story, plus what you're going to cover after the, in the next segment, That I, why I wanted to have you on the show, Mike, because you really are a walking, breathing, billboard example of human agency, the ability and, and the magnificence of the human spirit to be able to face that kind of adversity and um, come through the other side the way that you have. That is a lot of what I wanted to celebrate and also share with my listeners, because everybody needs hope. And you offer us hope with your story.
2: Thank you. You're I welcome. appreciate that. Yeah,
1: you're welcome. So, with that, listeners, let's grab our first break. I'm Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Mike Rouse. He's a running and endurance sports enthusiast and philanthropist. We're conducting this conversation live together in my Dallas office studio in our simulcasting on Facebook live stream. We've been talking about his early life before prison and what it was like during prison. After the break, we're going to talk about just how it was that he managed to recreate himself post incarceration. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Mike Rouse, a running and endurance sports enthusiast and philanthropist. Mike has experienced the high life, incarceration in prison, starting over and living his passion post-release. We're conducting this conversation live together in my Dallas office studio and are simulcasting on Facebook live stream. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. All right, so now we want to get into even more of your story here So it's been more than 30 years, 32 years since you've been released from prison, and it wasn't easy to reintegrate back into mainstream society. So if you could tell us a little bit about those early tender years of starting over post-release.
2: You know, one of the things that happened uh, was the day I was uh, actually paroled out, I'll never forget, I I was handed a $200 check and a bus ticket uh, back to Abilene from the penitentiary. Uh, my bag of clothes that I had come in, in uh, with uh, and a handshake and we'll see you later. Uh, so I got out in a taxi that took me to the bus station. I got on the bus and I got to Abilene. And the, the story that I told earlier today about uh, the guy saying that I had to change everything hit me really quick once I was actually released. Uh, I'd kind of forgotten that story, but I got, I got to Abilene and one of my good buddies picked me up at the bus station. Uh, It was actually one of my drug buddies back in the day, and he says, uh, hey, I wanted to see you. It's been a long time. Uh, I'm going to take you to your mom and dad's house, but let's go grab some lunch and and talk and catch up a little bit. And I said, okay. Well, on the way to the restaurant, he reached into his pocket as he was driving his car and pulled out a, a vial of cocaine. And as he looked at me with a big smile on his face and his eyes shining. He says, hey, let's, let's relive some old times. And I said, buddy, I can't do that. I just got out of prison and I have to report to a parole officer tomorrow. They're probably going to drug test me. There's absolutely no way I can do that. Plus, it ruined my life. You've been out here. I've been locked up for months and months and months. I can't go back to it. And it hit me to like a ton of bricks immediately that, you know what, that guy was right. You got to change everything. And so once I'd gotten back to my mom and dad's house later that day and, and uh, you know, we had our reunion, my mom, dad, sister, and brother-in-law, and we talked a little bit about prison, not much. They didn't want to hear and I didn't really want to talk to them about it. But they just asked me what my plans were. And I said, you know, I don't know, but, but I can't stay here and I've got to start over. Well, my dad had retired while we were while I was incarcerated, and so my construction company was no longer in existence. I had financially lost everything. So that that was done, and I decided to come to Dallas. Uh, and so my sister and brother-in-law had a, an extra car, and they said, We'll loan you a car. It's a 12-year-old car, but we were going to sell it, but we'll let you use it until you can afford your own. And I called a buddy that lived here, and I said, hey, you got a spot for, for me to stay? And he said, yeah, I've got a couch you can sleep on. So I got in that car with my clothes, and, and I came to Dallas. So I changed everything. I changed my friends. I changed my home. I changed my career. And as much as I could, I changed everything I could to start completely over. And I'll never forget uh, going back to those days in prison when I'd laid on that bunk many, many nights and thought, you know what? I lost everything. I'm bankrupt. I can't go back to those same friends. Uh, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to have no money, no friends, and I'm going to live in a trailer park making minimum wage with three buddies. And that's going to be my life. And that's kind of the way I came out of it thinking. I had no idea what laid in store for me at the time, but I, I had a very negative outlook, but I just knew that I had to be positive and do it the right way. Wow. Talk about starting from zero. Really.
1: Um, and then amazingly, when you and I spoke, when we met with Katrina and Ian and Benedict um, to talk about your story and having you come on the show, you shared a few amazing breaks that you had. So share a couple of those that really helped you launch your journey.
2: Well, one of them was I I uh, knew that I had fallen in love with the the running world, the run, the sport of running. And I loved everything about it and I wanted to stay involved in it and keep that that hobby or whatever you want to call it at that time, going. It's no longer a hobby. It's a life for me now, a lifestyle. But at the time, it was still just a hobby. And so I, I walked into a Luke's locker uh, here in Dallas, Texas. And some of you may have, may not have heard of it, but one of the finest running stores in America. I had no experience in retail. I'd owned my own business, but I, I knew how to run a business, but I didn't know how to do retail. Uh, and I really didn't know anything about running other than just going out and going around a prison yard. I uh, didn't know anything about shoes or brands or any of that kind of stuff, but I walked in and applied and was very fortunate and, and was hired to work in that store. And uh, that was my first big break. Uh, a few months later, uh, I decided I need to get back into church. And so I, I was in church one Sunday morning and I met a man who uh, introduced himself and said, hey, I've been going here for years. I haven't ever seen you here before, but I've noticed you here the last few weeks. I, I, I felt compelled to come introduce myself. And so we ended up talking for a while, and I told him my story, uh, as I've shared with you guys today, and he started smiling as I'm telling my story, and he says, you know, there's somebody I want you to meet. And I said, why is that? And he says, well, what do you want to do with that? And I said, well, I've been a taker all my life. For 33 years, I took, 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 whatever I could get. I wanted the most money, the best house, the nicest cars, the most girls, all that kind of stuff, all that I wanted. And now I need to start giving back. And I said, so I, I want to give back to those guys coming out of prison who haven't been as fortunate as me to have that loving family, uh, a college degree, uh, business experience to be able to get a job and, and start over and get my life back. And I want to give back to those guys and help them start. And so he introduced me to a lady, and I won't use her name, uh, but if, if, I, if I could use her name, she was one of the most powerful women in America at the time who I had no idea who she was. And uh, I met her for lunch through my buddy I'd met at church, and we were able to discuss my past and what needed, what I wanted to do, and she agreed to help me. And about 60 days later, we had formed a 501c3 nonprofit called Exodus, and we had started a nonprofit uh, prison aftercare program for ex-offenders and their families there in East Dallas, and I'm glad to say, uh, fortunately, that 32 years later, that program is still going. Uh, it's changed the lives of hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of men and women and their kids that have come out of prison and put them back on the right track. And so uh, immediately I realized that, that I wasn't going to be living in that trailer park, working for minimum wage with three friends, that I was going to have the opportunity to, to make a difference in the world. And I, I've been greatly blessed by that.
1: Let me emphasize a really key learning point for anybody. There's a few people who are on the the Facebook live stream who heard me say this before, but this is the power of saying what you're up to in life, what you want, what you're up to and where you're going. Because when you do it, especially with, with any kind of conviction or passion, People get enrolled and they want to come with you. And I think this is a great example of how Mike has been able to share what he he wanted to do and make happen. He did get lucky in his breaks. There may have been some divine intervention there. Who knows? (laughs) But, But the point is sharing what you're up to is so important. People can't help you unless they know what you're up to. So I want to emphasize that point. And then from there, what I'd love for you to share, and by the way, let me acknowledge a couple of people have said, um, you know, a pre- love a comeback story we're hearing here on W4CY chat where we're recording the, the, the show live. Thank you for that comment. Um, Tiff is asking what made you turn your life around. We're covering all that. There was a lot of it go- about going through prison, Tiff, that started that off. Um, but the other thing that happened for you after you got out of prison, Mike, is that you had a lot of success in various sales roles post-release. So, say a little bit more about how those roles came about and really what you were doing in those.
2: <clears throat> well, after working for uh, the retail store for several years, uh, Luke's Locker, I... Um, I decided that I wanted to someday own my own running store. That was kind of a dream because, again, having been in business uh, from the time I graduated college till I went to prison, I I knew how to run a business, and I was an entrepreneur type guy, and so I wanted to own my own running store, uh, but I didn't know how to do that. I got experience from Luke's, but uh, I decided I needed to learn the wholesale side, and so one of the reps came in one day uh, with Brooks running shoes, and Uh, told me that she was looking for a partner to help her out in covering four states in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and Iowa and I threw my name in the hat and fortunately she brought me on board with her and so I moved up there and did that for a while and then Mizuno uh, Running Shoes, Mizuno USA, uh, called me up in 1996 and said that they were going to open up uh, a new division for running here in the U.S. and wanted to know if I was interested in taking a position. Um, uh, and I took it and they moved me out to San Diego and I was the Western regional sales manager out there for several years and, uh, then went on from that to be national sales manager at Exodus, Ex- sorry, Exodus, <laughs> at, at Zoot Sports, uh, and, uh, when they got into the running shoe business and so I worked there for three years and then when K-Swiss got into running shoes, they hired me as the v- vice president of running, uh, and then I worked for On Running Company, uh, and then later on, started my own running store back here in Texas mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But I was very fortunate that everywhere I went, I crossed paths with the right people at the right time.
1: Yeah, there's definitely fortune in that. And I will always say it. thank you for that beautiful contribution. There's also something to be said about just the way you walk through life, Mike. I mean, as you said, you don't do anything halfway. Right. So, people people get that, right? They know this guy's a winner. You know, I'm going to bet on this horse kind of thing. So. What I have to know next is, what is it about running that and, and endurance sports that you love so much? I'm a runner. Um, I run three times a week, but it doesn't mean the same thing to me as it does you, and I'm not as crazy as you are with <laughs> it.
2: Well, I, you know, I haven't talked much about this except just the part that about me running in prison and working for the store, but I actually, once I got out, I, I, I knew I wanted to stay in with it, and so I started running 5Ks and 10Ks here in Dallas. And then somebody said something about doing a marathon and I thought, well, that's the farthest thing I could, you know, anybody could ever run. So I'm going to do that and, and kind of expand my horizons a little bit. And so I ran my first marathon thinking, you know, that would be it. And I fell in love with it. i never forget crying at the finish line and just had the time of my life. And I ran several more and and uh, then all of a sudden one day uh, one of my board members at Exodus uh I'd just run the Boston Marathon, and he asked me to lunch. And so as we're talking about Boston, and I'm all proud about finishing the Boston Marathon and how cool I must be that I qualified and then got to go run it. (laughs) And this older gentleman, he was uh, in his late 50s, and I'm still in my 30s at the time, late 30s, early 40. And he says, well, when you become a real man, you can come run my 50-mile race. And I said, Mr. Jackson, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I put on a 50-mile race out at Bachman Lake every every January, and uh, on my 50th birthday, I ran 50 miles to celebrate life, and it became a a hit, and so I I created a race out of it. Well, crazy me, again, got to do it big time, right? And so I started training, and uh, in January of of 88, uh, I ran my first Jackson 5.0 50-miler and had the time of my life, and then about six months to a year later, I saw the Western States 100 on TV. Thought that's got to be the greatest. So I got enrolled in that and went out and did that race. And I've been doing ultras ever since for 30 years. But I think part of part of it for me at least is the fact that it literally running did change my life. Uh, it wasn't the be all end all of what changed my life. There were other things, God and family and and just supportive people that I met that became friends and, and encouraged me and and were there for me. But running just gave me something. That made me uh, feel better about myself, and and I just I have a passion for it that I can't even explain. And then people ask me all the time, why would you run hundred miles? And my response is always, well, if you can't understand it, I can't explain it. Because uh, there's nothing smart about it. There's nothing cool about it. It's crazy, uh, but it's who I am and what I do. And I I just I, I just get so much passion from it and. Uh, I've met so many people. Uh, I'm literally fortunate enough to say I I know the top three or four runners in America. Meb Klafeski is a good friend of mine. Des Linden that won Boston Marathon, first American in 35 years, is a dear friend of mine. Um, The top 10 or 15 guys at Ironman World Championships every year are all friends of mine. So from three friends living in a trailer park to knowing the greatest athletes in the world, And being national sales manager for two brands in the running industry, it's just given back to me so much Mm -hmm. that I, I just love the sport so help our listeners understand
1: just how crazy you are so you've done i think it's a 250 marathons
2: 260 marathons 260
1: marathons how many 50s
2: 78 50 mile races 78 50 mile races and how many 100 mile races i just did my 37th 100 mile or 24
1: hour ride so ladies and gentlemen this is what crazy looks like (laughs) and sounds like crazy okay um now we know you're certifiable Okay, with that, let's grab our last break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Mike Rouse. He is a running and endurance sports enthusiast and philanthropist. We're conducting this conversation together in my Dallas office studio and simulcasting on Facebook live stream. After the break, we're going to talk about that whole other passion of his about giving back. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Back to Working on Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Mike Rouse. He's a running and endurance sports enthusiast and philanthropist. Mike has experienced the high life, incarceration in prison, starting over and living his passion post-release. We're, t- we're conducting this conversation live together in my Dallas office studio and are simulcasting on Facebook live stream. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Mm-hmm. So for this last segment here, Mike, we want to talk about one of your other passions. And before I do that, I want to first acknowledge something that you said in the last segment. The idea about really living your purpose. So when I go out and speak, as Brandy Nice can attest, um, passion for me is what we give of ourselves to the world. Inspiration is what we get back from the world by the way of experiences and, and what the world gives us. So you're kind of recharging, your, you're getting both passion and inspiration in the work that you're doing with your, with your running. Now we add in your philanthropy piece. And so I want to go back to what you said about you were ready to give back after you got out of, out of prison and you have founded and directed two nonprofit organizations. So let's talk about each of them. First, there's the Curtis Relief Foundation. How did you start this? What does
2: it do? Well, it, it kind of piggy t- piggybacked off the Exodus program that I started back in 1987. Uh, that had been going for about three or four years. And for those of you that can recall, in 1991, we had the first Persian Gulf War where Iraq invaded Kuwait and um Elder, Bush, uh, Elder President Bush uh, went in and drove him out of Kuwait, drove him, annihilated his army and drove him back uh, away. And in return, Saddam decided he had to continue to show military support to his people. And so he went up into the mountains of northern Iraq where the Kurds lived, which is the largest uh, people group in the world without a country. Uh, they live in eastern Syria, southern Turkey, western Iran, and northern Iraq in kind of a little pocket there. And so he went up into those mountains where these these villagers were and annihilated them and drove them up into the mountains and then destroyed all their villages. And so um, I was at a conference on how to raise funds for a nonprofit in Waco, Texas. And the last speaker of the of the convention was a, a gentleman who walked to the, uh, microphone, and this was in 1992, about six months after the invasion of, of Kuwait, and he started talking about his people, the Iraqi Kurds, and how they had been annihilated by Saddam and driven into the mountains, and yet the American government had gone into one of Saddam's prison camps and taken about 2,000 of those Kurds and brought them to Dallas, Texas, and he's explaining the, the dilemma that these people are in. Even though now they're free, they're safe, uh, they're out of the uh, dictatorship of Saddam, but yet, these people are sheep herders and apple growers, who have on the clothes that they wore or wearing in the camp. They've never spoken English. They they've never been allowed to go to school by Saddam. So they've they're uneducated sheep herders and apple growers, and their only pair of clothes they have. They're living in an apartment complex in North Dallas, uh, mid Mid Park in seventy five, just north of LBJ, and they're given food stamps and a free place to live. And these are families of 10 to 15 people each living in three-bedroom apartments, sleeping on the floor, eating out of cans, and eating raw food because they don't know how to cook and they have no utensils. And so I'm hearing S- Maffa talk about this, and so when he gets through, I walked up, ran up to him, and I said, you don't know me, but my name is Mike Rouse. Here's my card. I have a nonprofit where we have... Furniture and donations given to us to furnish apartments for ex-convicts, but if I can help, you've really touched my heart with what the problem is uh, with these Kurdish people here in Dallas, and I want to help. So the next day he calls me and he says, Mr. Mike, I'm wondering if you can help us furnish those 53 apartment units. And I kind of laughed and I said, well, Maffa, I can help with maybe a couple of couches and four or five beds and, you know, some pots and pans, but I can't furnish 53 apartments. There's absolutely no way. And I said, but I'll do what I can. Give me your number and I'll, I'll call you when I can do something. Well, I hung up the phone talking to him. Within just a matter of hours, the lady who was the president of the Junior League of Dallas called me and said, Mike, we're having a Junior League garage sale this weekend in North Dallas. Everything that's left over on Monday has to be out of the warehouse. Would you be interested in having that for your program? If you'll pick it up, you can have it all. And I was like, wow, how crazy is this that within hours after I get this request, I get this phone call. And so I called Moffa and I said, be at this address on Monday morning, 8 o'clock, fifteen twenty strong men, 3 or 4 u U-hauled, big trucks, and we'll see what we can do. Well, by 8 o'clock, 72 hours later, after that initial phone call and meeting, 53 apartment units were furnished. Top to bottom, beds, couches, clothing, pots and pans, dishes, you name it. Enough clothes for everyone to have plenty. And long story short, we ended up starting another 501c3 nonprofit called the Kurdish Relief Association to help them. Again, these kids had never been allowed to go to school. The parents didn't have jobs. They didn't have driver's license. They had nothing. So we did a program similar to Exodus and where we had tutors come in from the Richardson School District and tutor the kids, teach them English. We had people come in, teach the men how to drive. We had people from different stores come in and teach the ladies how to put on makeup. Everything you can do. We had doctors and dentists that would come in and give them free exams for their teeth and give them shots to get into school. It was amazing. Uh, And so these people were totally blessed. Uh, And then about six months later, I got another call from my buddy, Mafa Barzani, and he says, Mike, we want to start a school in northern Iraq, working with the Kurds and help our families to learn democracy in English. And so I was fortunate enough about six months later to go over to Iraq for the first time and we started a school in Dahuk Iraq, a city of a million and a half people with no electricity, no water, no sewer, no phone service, no streets. Saddam had destroyed the city basically, but 100, 1.5 million people still live there. And so we started this school in a burned out building uh, with 60 young people, teenagers. And that school went on for three years. Uh, I went in several times, uh, in and out, in and out. And just a blessing total blessing and those people are all doing well now the Kurds and so that that nonprofit didn't last as long but it didn't need to yeah it was one of those short short short-term type things but you know again I learned that giving back uh, changed people's lives and it changed my life because I realized I thought my life was tough and here are people who you know have been living under a dictatorship all their lives a little bit of perspective
1: goes a long way Okay. So that's amazing, Mike. I mean, let me just say, I mean, talk about making a a sea change difference to somebody else's life not just a person's life, but a a, a multiple number of people's lives. I mean, just I really appreciate. And again, listeners and viewers, I really want you to be able to get present to just what you can do in your life if you really set your mind to it and you you just keep looking for ways to do it. And and I'll say more about that later. But really, there's so much you can do in your own life. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about was, you said already, you talked about the Exodus program, and, and Molly Wade said that she knew about this program, but say a little bit more about that program. What, what is it? Who does it serve? What do you do in the program?
2: Well, again, Exodus is about reuniting families. <clears throat> it's about putting someone who's been incarcerated, again, back to what we, we said at the very first, from 35 decisions to 35 to 40 decisions, and all of a sudden one day they're let out and they said, okay, here's freedom. Now go out and do the right thing or you're coming back. And so they need to be taught things, uh, you know, how to get jobs. The, the average inmate in the Texas penitentiary system is about a ninth grade education. Uh, most of them are from single parents and second, third, and fourth generation convicts. Um, they come out, their families probably still love them, but yet they've been mistreated and abused and used by them. Their wives, their children don't know who they are anymore. Uh, the wives may still love them as a, as a husband and a dad, uh, but yet they've been living from house to house, shelter to shelter, and now they come back in trying to rule the roost. And so there's a lot of dysfunction going on. And so that program has, was set up to, to help them with getting a GED, with helping them get a job. Again, how, do, how does a guy with a ninth grade education, whose resume would say uh, drug addict, uh, drug dealer, Attempted robbery, attempted murder. That's your job <laughs> resume. Wow! And you walk into a job trying to do the right thing and be honest and forthright, and yet that's that's on your record. Uh, your family's still leery because again, you've taken from them, you've embarrassed them, uh, and so they're they're not they're not ready to trust you yet. So we try to that program Exodus is to give them the tools to reintegrate back into society, to do it right this time to To realize what they need to do to be a father or a mother to their children, uh, wow. and, and and just do things right and start giving back rather than takers. They were like me; they were takers all their lives.
1: Wow, Mike, talk about helping helping a, a group of people that otherwise could no way help themselves. They they would be destined to just simply repeat the cycle and go downward in the spiral. Um, wow. And then on top of all that, you also raised funds for the Navy SEAL Foundation and the Blazeman Foundation, War
2: on ALS. What is that about? I mean, where do you get time for that? Well, again, that thank goodness for my running. That's how that started. I, back in 2002, uh, there in San Diego, I met a Navy SEAL, a couple of Navy SEALs who came out to our running group because they were training for a marathon. And uh, my first thought is you know there's 35 40 of us that are elite runners that run seven days a week and we're all pretty fit and thin and you know all the stuff that comes from a elite runner group and here are these two big guys six foot four 230 pounds trying to run with us and yet they could they were they were pretty good but we became friends and after several weeks one of them came up and says uh, hey can we talk for a second and i said sure and he says uh, i'm from Rockford Iowa and my, I don't get to see my parents very often, but I need a West Coast dad. Would you be my, my West Coast daddy? And i call you Pops. <laughs> and I said, well, sure. And he said, well, I'm training for a marathon, and I know you're a big-time marathoner. Would, would you train with me? So we started running together pretty regularly and became very, very close, like a stepson to me. Uh, and so down through the years, we became I became friends with many, many other Navy SEALs uh, through, through J.T. and, and Bo, my first two that I met. Uh, And then in August the 6th, 2011, we lost JT, my buddy, uh, the one that I'd met first. He was shot down on a helicopter called Extortion 17 in Afghanistan, the loss of um, 31 American lives that day. And so I knew that I had to do something to honor his life. Like I said, he was almost like a son to me. And so I set up a race there in San Diego called Jogging for Frogmen. Uh, which was a 5K run and a and a 24-hour run. Uh, the 24 hours was just me running for 24 hours, running a 3.1-mile loop 31 times, and each time I would run a loop in honor of one of those men who were, had lost their lives and given everything. And then when I was done, then we would ha- have the 5K race, and we've, we've raised, uh, now after eight years, we've raised about $2.7 million for the Navy SEAL Foundation in honor of those men. And... You know, it's just, to me, it's not even about suffering or hard work or anything else other than 31 men love their country enough to give their, their the ultimate sacrifice in their lives. So for me to go out and hurt for one day is, is a very small gift in my mind.
1: What a fantastic way of looking at it. And so, what I also talk about so often in my programs and my speaking is how it is that we frame things. That what is it, the lens that we allow ourselves to view the world, opportunities, people. And you are a great example of how you can control that. And for for the best possible good. And so, to that end, we're getting close to the end of the show. I really see you, Mike, and part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show is you're you a magnificent example of, of the human spirit to persevere and to really cause agency in the world, to make something happen from nothing to something enormous. So for our listeners to understand, how would you describe what you've gone through, what you've gotten from life, and how has that made you into this energy ball that you are today?
2: Well, my whole philosophy about life, and I... I try to live this every day. I don't always live it every day. But the only way that you can fail is if you try, right? If you don't try, you can never fail. So the only thing you need to be afraid of is not trying. Because as long as you're afraid, as you're willing to, to fail once, fail twice, fail three times, eventually you're going to win out and people are going to be blessed by that. So I try every single day to give everything I have you know, I, again, being a sports guy, I'll look at a Michael Jordan or a Tiger Woods. Does Tiger Woods make every putt? Does Michael Jordan make every free throw? Does any athlete do everything right every time? No. There's failures every single time. If you've got a 330 batting average, you're a darn good hitter in, in Major League Baseball. You d- you're, no one is perfect. You're going to have failure. But you can only fail if you try. And there's people out there that need you to try because they need your support and your help.
1: That's phenomenal, and I think, again, it goes back to framework, mindset, and that's just so important, and you can control that. You can develop that. You can control that, and and, and what I would say to that is, what I often say when I'm out speaking to audiences, Mike, is I ask them in the very beginning, what will you do with your one precious life? Yep. You have choice in that matter every single day, so with that, we're at, here we are at the very end. Um, you know this show is listened to across the globe. People will hear it over and over again. What would you like to leave listeners with that you would think will help them really live a life of meaning, passion, and purpose?
2: Well, I think it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the trying. My philosophy is that when I die, and we're all going. <laughs> uh, no way out of it. No way out of it. Uh, I want one thing to be put on my tombstone. And that is that Mike Rouse made a difference. And that if each and every one of us can have that same attitude and same mindset, that you made a difference. And it may not have been to a group of people. It may not have been to a world. It may not have been to a big company. It may have been to your son or your daughter or your wife or your husband. It may have been to your, you know, one person at work. But if you made a difference, your your life was worth something. And I don't ever want to leave this earth and people say, man, he could have done better. I, I want to give it all I got. And that's the reason why running is so special, because I'm able to give it all I got when I go run.
1: Mm mm-hmm. Nothing left in the tank. I got that. <laughs> uh, Mike Ross, I want to thank you for being my guest and working on purpose, touching the lives of the people who are listening to the show and making a difference in the world. Thank you. So, listeners, I didn't will- cry. Yeah. Well, I was. Yeah, I was. I was hoping you because then I might, you know, join you. But and I want to. I, I want to always embrace emotion. So I'm okay with you crying, and me too. Um, but listeners, just one thing to echo that Mike said there at the end. Uh, one of the things I do in my programs, and I often say when I'm out speaking, I really encourage you to start with the end in mind, and go write your own eulogy. Go write what it is you want people to say about you when you're actually gone, and live to that. That is an amazing way to architect your life. And Mike, cue that up for us. So just something to think about. If you want to learn more about Mike Rouse and the work he's doing in his philanthropy endeavors, or if you want to get involved with him somehow, maybe you want to be part of what he's up to, or you want to be able to help him in one of his various endeavors, reach out to him. There's two ways to do it. You can catch him on Facebook. Um, His name is Mike Rouse. That's R-O-U-S-E. So find him there. Anything related to running, you know you got the right guy. There's about five of them on there, so get the right guy. The other way is to send him an email, and that is Mike.Rouse52 at gmail.com. Let me spell that again for you, M-I-K-E dot R-O-U-S-E 52 at gmail.com. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Reach out. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a be B-Recorded podcast. We were on the air with Aparna Sane talking about mindful leadership and conscious capitalism. Next week, we'll be on air with Selena Santibes of GPS Consulting as I take the show on the road with me while speaking at the Cornerstone Credit Union Leadership Conference in San Antonio. We'll be talking about the impact she's making in San Antonio. See you there. Remember that work is at least one third of our lives. So let's work on purpose.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.